Welcome to A Counselor's Journey to Private Practice. I'm your host, Juan, and this podcast teaches mental health professionals to cultivate curiosity and build ambition in their journey to starting, growing, and scaling a private practice. Let's dive into the episode. Hey guys, welcome to A Counselor's Journey to Private Practice. I am here with Allison Pigeon, who is the two-go-to person. She's a ninja samurai when it comes to transitioning your solo practice to a group practice while most importantly making sure not to fail. Hey, Allison. Hi, Juan. How are you? I'm doing good. Doing good. Um, as a side note, um, I like to give Allison a big thank you because a while back, her and I had a consultation when I was part of her group, uh, Mastermind, and she was like, yes, you need to do a podcast. Um, so thank you. Yeah, now you're doing it. I think it's awesome how you just are so quick to take action about things like you just you're like oh yeah okay and then you just do it like whereas other people would like think about it for months and months but you're very quick to implement so I think that's that's good thank you yeah one of the like themes that I have in a counselor journey to private practice in this podcast is being curious and being ambitious so hopefully you know as people are listening they're able to push away from that I'm not sure if it's a counselor's mentality to to be patient and to listen and to wait and then to take action. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in if you see something and you want it, you know, you're hungry for it, then jump at it and you're going to get better over time. And even when you get really, really good at it, you're going to continue to get better. Um, so Allison, the topic that I want to do today is looking at the, um, the, the gold nuggets, if you will. So if there's clinicians out there listening and they have a solo practice, you know, a one person shop, and they're wanting to make that leap of faith, what are the core components that's going to help them get there? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there's a number of things that you need to do before you even get into the hiring process. And so some of the things that we typically recommend to people when they're thinking about starting a group practice is looking at what you already have existing and do you need to make changes in order to make it work for the group? So for example, you might have named your practice your name. And what we tend to recommend is that you pick a more generic name um, or a name that's maybe not associated as strongly with you because if your name is on the door, so to speak, or on the sign, people are always going to ask for you um, as opposed to, uh, you know, getting clients for your clinicians, which is ultimately what you want to do as a group practice owner. So uh, another thing is if you if you didn't uh, form like a legitimate business entity, you know, in some states you can just sort of like hang out a sign and start seeing clients. Um, so if you never formed an LLC or a PLLC or an S corp or whatever is required in your state, definitely do that because you want to have that legal protection. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything were to happen. Um, Some other things too that people don't necessarily do when they're just like a one person show is um, formalize the things that they're doing. (laughs) (laughs) So they may not have, for example, picked out an accounting software um, to help them sort of track all of their receipts and they may not have, um, you know, opened a business specific bank account, then maybe they just opened a personal account or maybe their personal money and their business money is just all mixed up together. 
this is where you need to take the time to separate all of those things out so that your business and your personal stuff is all separate. Your money expenses, income is all being tracked in a formalized way. You could run a profit and loss report. So if you haven't set up something like QuickBooks, now is definitely the time because it may have been manageable to do it yourself on a spreadsheet or whatever. But if you're going to have a group practice, there's going to be a lot more money coming in and money going out. And so it's going to get unwieldy pretty quickly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that last one, it still hits home to me where you're looking at having these uh, these systems that are organized. I think sometimes, you know, and I know I I did this a lot as a um, solo practitioner where I would rely on myself to get it done because I wanted to save money. You know, I would say, well, I'll just do all these um, spreadsheets. Uh, Or my my wife. My wife would do all the um, spreadsheets uh, because our our group practice is uh, husband and wife. Um, but then, you know, listening and being part of your mastermind, I started to think about the numbers, you know, if I spend an hour on these versus with a client, I'm going to make a lot more with that client and then I could pay someone, you know, um, a strong fee, but a lower fee, uh, to be able to do that, um, additional work. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's the hardest thing when you're first starting out is that so many people are just like, oh, well, I can do this um, or I can bootstrap it or I can just wear all the hats for a while because it's cheaper than paying somebody else to do these things. But at the end of the day, you have to evaluate your own strengths and weaknesses. And sometimes it just makes more sense to hire somebody who's an expert at that because it's going to take them way less time than it's going to take you. And or you just can't be good at absolutely everything. You know, like my CPA knows how to save money on taxes. I don't, you know, know anything about that. So I'm happy to pay her for that expertise. Um, So I think you have to be really careful about that because it's easy to sort of rationalize to yourself like, oh, I can just do all this myself. I can create graphics and clean the office and answer the phone. And, (laughs) (laughs) but then after a while, you're just, you become like the most overpaid cleaning person slash phone answer slash <laughs> you do yeah you, you can't put that designer. on your resume that's right that's right <laughs> I think it's interesting that um you know as clinicians many of us we struggle with um paying for those services uh, but but then you know we, we forget to realize you know what our current rate is and, and how much we would save uh, by doing that I think it was the owner of um the company is it Alibaba that company I forget the, the main guy's name, but he has a good quote or statement where he hires people smarter than him. And I always find that fascinating, you know, to be able to say, okay, here's my practice and here's all the puzzle pieces to it. Who can I hire that's better than me in the, you know, janitorial work or in the, you know, calling people back or creating um, logos so that, you know, you're getting high quality uh, service uh, to, to build your brand, to build your uh, company. Yeah, I absolutely believe that because I see so many examples in my own business where I have hired somebody who's better at me at something and it's just, I see the return on investment with it. Yeah. What, what do you think about the first statement you mentioned with changing your name to something a little more generic? Um, and I'm going to kind of push a little bit here because my practice is Santos Counseling. Um, do, do you see that it's like a you know, a, a definite measure, like you need to do it, or it's just going to, you know, really hurt your practice? Um, or does it depend on names that are, 
maybe a little more uh, narrow than mine? Yeah, I think it depends on what your plans are for the practice. So we often don't think about the end when we're starting our business. Like we don't think like, oh, one day I'll want to sell the practice, but one day maybe you do want to sell the practice. And so if it's, if you've built it up around your name, it might be harder to sell it um, because it's so attached to you. Um, and then also like, well, what happens when you do sell it? Like, do they keep your name? Well, your name has all this great marketing power versus like, do they change it to something else? You know what I mean? Like it yeah. just creates problems with that situation. Um, something though, too, I don't think that's as, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Like having Santos counseling isn't as um, difficult as when somebody has like, you know, Tom Jones and associates. Well, like if you see Tom Jones and you're always going to, you know, want to see him for therapy versus Santos counseling is a little bit more indicative. I think of like a group. Yeah. Okay. So like if I would have went with Juan Santos, uh, PLLC, right. Right. And I see that a lot with clinicians out there, like it'll just be first and last name for their practice. Um, then making that transition could be a little more difficult when you've got, oh, we, we got Sally here and Bob too. Right, exactly. Okay. What about language? Um, you know, should there be a shift as far as um, how you communicate yourself to your audience or to your community? Let's say on an online space. Yeah, I think a big shift is just changing the I on your website to we. So instead of I see women with anxiety is we see women with anxiety. So then you're reflecting all throughout the website that you're a group and not just an individual. Um, And I think too, um, it's interesting when you start, when you start a group practice, how it just sort of, it lends more, I feel like it lends more legitimacy to your business. Mm, So especially when you start to use that language, like we, you know, like there's many of us, like (laughs) it just sort of like elevates that, like, status or whatever you want to call it it reminds me of um is it the actor jim carrey me myself and i uh-huh yeah when it's like yeah we will take care of your billing <laughs> and then it's like me myself and i <laughs> oh i should have said that because now i'm laughing way too hard and it's gonna be so hard to kind of hone it back in let's see <laughs> big big there honing it back in what about and this is something that you know I know I've struggled with and maybe other clinicians struggle with when it's a transition from solo to group, how to advertise or market the other clinicians. Because I think, you know, we know ourselves so much. Like I know me and I know everything about me to be able to communicate that to um to, to the audience or to you know potential clients. Yeah. So I think this is actually one thing I learned from Joe Sanok, who runs the practice of the practice. Um, you know, when I used to go to networking events and it was just a solo practice, I would say, well, I see this type of client and da, 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 da. And then when I started going to networking events and I had the group practice, I spent the whole time talking about the other therapists. And I would say, Whitney sees teenage girls and she's great. And we get lots of compliments about how much, you know, how well she relates to teenagers. And then I, you know, sort of pepper in here and there all about the different therapists and their specialties. So I think that's a really important thing, like figuring out how to de-emphasize yourself. Um, Especially, you know, 
you probably have been around the longest as the owner. So you're naturally going to get referrals anyway from word of mouth and past clients and things like that. So I would definitely focus on, you know, put yourself last on the list of clinicians and, you know, don't have the whole website be like your picture plastered everywhere. (laughs) I've seen (laughs) that before. (laughs) Where, Where the owner, it was like, the picture of the owner was like on every page, but like none of the other therapists in the practice were pictured anywhere. <laughs> oh, they're like, you will remember my name. Yeah. Right. And my face. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and w- how do you go about building this idea of who the clinicians are so that you can market them in the way that you used to market yourself? Cause again, I think solo practitioners, you know, they know who they are. They know their avatar. Um, what's, um, uh, just a couple of steps of the process to being able to market those that you hire. Yeah. So I think that um, kind of a crossroads that every potential group practice owner comes to is, you know, do I have a practice that's like a single specialty? Like we are the play therapy practice. We see children. This is what we do versus what we call multi-specialty. So um, like in my practice, we have, sort of an umbrella niche of women's issues, but then everybody has their own specialty underneath that. And so we have like maternal mental health and dual diagnosis and, um, you know, somebody who works with teenagers and, you know, kind of runs the gamut. So you have to, um, you know, if you're not sure who your client, who your therapist ideal client is, you have to talk with them and ask them like, Hey, where do you think your referrals are coming from? Um, you know, they may be working with a population that I've never marketed to before. And so when they first start, if I'm not sure how to market for them to get clients, I will actually, um, have them, you know, sit down with me and brainstorm, like, who should we be talking to? Is there, you know, particular referral source that you think you're, um, your clients go to first before they, you know, come to therapy and that kind of thing. So, yeah. So in a group practice, you could have multiple, um, places where you're going to market for those different specialties. Okay. Yeah. I like that idea. And I did something very similar where I just sat down, um, with a clinician, asked lots of questions, like, you know, your ideal client, um, you know, what do they struggle with? Let's keep this in average Joe terms. Um, and that seems to really go a long way. And then it kind of reminded me of my own process, you know, way back when, when I had those, um, that conversation with myself. With your practice, um, Move Forward, right? Mm-hmm. And it's heavily focused on the niche of women, correct? Um, correct, yeah. Do you think that other solo clinicians out there that want to make that shift, should that there be their mentality? Like if I'm going to shift over to a group practice and I need to have it on one niche, men's issues, women's relationship, or are they open to have, you know, a, a broad uh, group practice and still be able to reach success? Yeah, I think one of the tricky things that we run into when we're working with um, practice owners to figure out exactly what type of practice they want to build, what do they want to be known for if you have a multidisciplinary practice where maybe you have a little bit of everything. And so anybody in the community could find a practitioner that would suit um, their needs. It's really hard then to succinctly explain to someone what exactly your practice does. 
Um, which is why I came up with that term like umbrella niche, because if I'm at a networking event and someone says, oh, what do you do? That's always the question, right? And I say, well, I own a mental health private practice. And then the next question out of their mouth is, oh, what kind of clients do you see? And if I said, well, we see teenagers and adults and anxiety and Mm. and I rattle off this big, long list, it's not going to be very memorable and or the word versus if I say we focus on women's issues, that is a way to sort of tie it all together. Um, So I think that you do, even if you do have a lot of different specialties, it would be helpful to figure out how do I tie it all together just to explain it in a really succinct way um, so that it's memorable for people um, when you're, you know, when you're sharing about your practice. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess it'd be no different than, you know, a solo practitioner, you know, having that elevator speech, you know, who do you work with? And they're, they're right. like, you know, you got 30 minutes because I'm about to give you the whole list <laughs> on psychology today that I can click on. <laughs> um, yeah, that'd, that'd be too long. So being able right. to narrow it and then, you know, after the clinician narrows their, their niche, if you will, then those clinicians that they hire can broaden their scope while still being under that umbrella. Right. Okay. For sure. And as a side note, guys, um, you know, listening out there, I'm picking Allison's brain with a lot of material connected to her mastermind group. So if you're like, man, this is some good stuff, I'd really encourage you to check that out. It, it helped help me, help my, my wife and I. We, we own a group practice, helped us go a long way. And I, I really think it could help you go a long way. Um, Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Absolutely. Uh, Allison, something else I wanted to question on when it comes to going from solo to group is, uh, is there a number of clients that the person should have before they make that transition? That is actually a big myth. A lot of people think they have to be full or like turning away clients before they can start hiring other people. But what I tell practice owners is if you're at that point, you are then not going to have the time or the bandwidth to be able to build the group practice. And so, you know, a really good time would be maybe three quarters full. So, you know, maybe you've put together enough of the solo practice and had enough success with understanding how to run the business and do the marketing and all of that kind of stuff, but you're not totally overwhelmed with clients and you have the the time and energy to actually build up the practice. So yeah, don't wait till you're like drowning in clients. Okay. Yeah. You know, and I think that's uh, even listening to it, I think there's variables that may shed light on, on why it makes sense because there's that mentality. And I had it too, where I was like, well, I don't have enough clients to pay a clinician to come on staff. But then my, my mentality was going the wrong direction. You know, I don't need a W2 employee where I'm saying, here's, you know, 50,000 a year that you're going to be paid to see X amount of clients. You know, we could hire a contract and then get someone that's an eager beaver willing to come in, hustle and do the work uh, and then give some sort of split uh, where they're able to, you know, pull in patients, get patients from the practice and then build, um, build their caseload. Yeah, I was surprised too going through the process, especially because I started out with contractors, like how low cost it was to bring somebody on because I didn't pay them until they actually, you know, had the money come into the practice. So it was very um, low risk for me in terms of like an upfront financial investment. Let's break that. So, so far you broke one myth. 
Big round of applause. Good job. I like okay. that. Okay. Okay. Thank you. The next one is um, the statement that you just said, and I lost it. Oh, how much money? <laughs> and, and I guess it could range, but you know, what does that investment look like for a clinician coming in, not W two, right? Their contract as far as what you'll need to pay for them. Yeah. So really, you're not paying. For any expenses outside of, you know, you already are paying rent probably for yourself, your own mm-hmm. office. As long as you're not going out and renting another office, you're not adding an expense there. Um, if you're adding any kind of administrative support, um, you know, somebody, a VA or something to answer your phone and schedule clients um, for you, obviously, then that is an added expense. But really, outside of the marketing, Um, and that is highly variable depending on what you want to do. There's not a whole lot of expense involved. Um, if you have all the pieces, you know, like I was talking about in the beginning, you sort of have all the foundational stuff in place. Like I already had an EHR and all of that when I hired somebody. So I didn't, you know, I wasn't like adding that expense on, I already had that as an expense. Yeah. It's just a heads up, not if you're not familiar with the term EHR, it's like simple practice, you know, system that manages uh, your practice for you. But, you know, I think that reduces a lot of uh, anxiety for clinicians out there because, you know, they were to hire someone, at least my brain goes to what it's going to cost money to hire them, going through a whole hiring process, HR, blah, blah, blah. Um, but overall, you know, with a contract uh, employee or subcontractor, you're, you're not, you know, you're not sh- shelling out um, a lot of money in the beginning and they're coming in, you know, to earn um, money. Right. Cause they're paying for them all practice insurance. They're paying mm-hmm. their taxes. They're paying all the expenses, you know, associated with actually doing their job. So if they need like a workbook or something, they have to buy all of that as a contractor. Yeah. I think for me, the only expense that I know my group practice added on is an, an extra fee with, with simple practice, which I use, um, and, and then I use, uh, for my phone system, all calls technology, uh, which is really awesome. I'll put an affiliate link uh, at the bottom uh, for you guys to check out. I mean, that's yeah, what I, I use, I use it too. Yeah. Yeah. I got the referral from you. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, they're awesome. They give you a whole script as far as, you know, how, um, somebody calling in can, uh, be, be provided, uh, a service if you will. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, like a typical monthly expense would be like a phone extension and a, you know, HIPAA compliant email. Yeah. And then if you look at it like a, as numbers, you know, you, if that's all, then you may have, I don't know, we'll say at, at, at most a hundred dollars that you're paying out, but if they're already, you know, having a, a fee of a hundred dollars for the rate seeing a patient, then you just need one, 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 one patient for them to see for you to break even. And then after that, both sides are making a profit and you've got what's called the best scenario, a win-win. Right. Allison, thank you so much for um, sharing some of your time. Uh, I know that you are a busy parent, a busy uh, practice owner, and you've got a beautiful red wall behind you. If you guys <laughs> can see it. <laughs> um, no, really, really thank you, um, you know, for taking time to be on this podcast. And guys, if you're listening, again, um, I did run through her mastermind group, um, going from solar to group practice, and there's no affiliation here or sponsorship, nothing like that. I just had a really beautiful experience. My wife and I, as group practice owners, were able to go in there and then come out with a really amazing transformation. And I think you can too, if that's uh, the avenue you want to go in. Yeah. Thank you so much, Juan. It was a pleasure having you in the group and seeing all the things that you're doing now. It's, it's really exciting. 
Well, thank you. Take care. In your journey of private practice, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Please leave an awesome review and share this podcast with any counselor you think is working towards starting, growing, and scaling a counseling practice. Let's grow together in our journey. I'll see you in the next episode.